Now direct your attention to the text, back to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 17. It's the second reading there in your bulletin. And Daniel is involved now in this bizarre episode. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah and to Mishael and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by the way. His companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his, his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things to those which is in the dark. He knows which is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you for you might have known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch when the king had appointed a destiny for the had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and sped dust to them. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to him thus, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked? But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in your bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it is to be. And as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind." The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The first sentence in the lecture that John Calvin gave on this text in his commentaries reads like this In this second chapter, we are informed how God brought Daniel into a theater to exhibit that prophetic office to which Daniel had been destined. The point of this passage is to demonstrate to King Nebuchadnezzar the power of God in making known himself. God is unknowable and inscrutable. 
unless he self-discloses, makes known himself to mankind. And this particular episode is a dramatic, it's interesting that Calvin used the word theater. This is a dramatic presentation, an extreme presentation of that conflict between that which is revealed by God, the eternal word of God, the very words of God, the mind of God being set forth in visions and various ways by the prophets. To the fathers, Hebrews 1.1 said God did it various times in various ways, reveal himself, make known himself, speak to the fathers by the prophets. And God speaks as opposed to man's wisdom, where man thinks his own thoughts, where he makes his observations, where he employs empirical reason, where he is suffering under a numerous biases, and where he makes up his own mind as to what is right, what is wrong, what is real, and what is unreal what is legal, what is moral, et cetera, et cetera. The revealed word of God, the revealed will of God, the mind of God is known only by special revelation. This is a crisis point in the life of Israel. You remember the first crisis point was a confrontation between Moses and the wise men of Pharaoh. And it was the same setup, the same arrangement, a a great king's court with all of his advisors. And these advisors are a fraternity of specialists. They're called wise men. They're counselors to the king. But they're also astrologers. They're sorcerers. They are various kinds of scientists. They are pharmacists. That's what the word sorcery means. They're pharmacists. They understand everything about what Mary Kind sees in his world and they relay it to the king so that the king has the very best advice, the very best course of action in order to uh, propagate his administration and his rule. And in the days of Moses and Pharaoh, God revealed with great miracle, with might, with word, and he delivered his people out of Egyptian bondage and launched his people upon their long time of being a theocratic kingdom under the Lord. In the middle of that theocratic kingdom, one more time, there was a crisis in the land. Who is the true God? Who is the true prophet? What is the real word from God versus what is conjured up by man? What comes out of the culture? What notions and ideas and values And views come out of the people round about, all the thinkers and the leaders and the wise men and and the religious people and the psychological people and the medical people and, and the legal people and all the rest of the people out there that have expertise. Because there is a tyranny of expertise. Somebody knows something and we all have to bow down to that viewpoint. And that's what happens in a very secular culture, in a very godless culture, and that is a worldview issue. And that same thing happened right in the middle of the theocratic kingdom in the days of Elijah. And Elijah faced a challenge, and you know the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Their God demonstrated his power by being the one that sent their God fire 
upon the all really. And they were failures. And the people realized that the Lord God was the true God. And they therefore were to listen to the prophet. First Elijah, then Elisha. And prophecy was alive and well in Israel in those days. Now we come all the way through the theocratic kingdom. We've seen the fall of the capital. We've seen Jerusalem destroyed and raised and completely pillaged by the Babylonians. And now the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, has the supreme authority in the land and upon the face of the earth as far as that area is concerned. And we have another crisis. God's people going into this pagan culture, into this culture of a completely different worldview. God and the Word need to be good authority for everything. And more than that, they need to come to some realization that the Word of the world, the Word of the secular culture, the Word of the pagan culture, the Word of the, Bal- the Chaldean culture, the Babylonian culture. And by the way, it was a superior culture. There's a sense in which these great kingdoms that we'll hear about later were not only great powers militarily, but they culturally they were incredible. I mean, what can you say about Greece? Alexander the Great, the Hellenization of the whole world in its day, the Roman culture with its, with its jurisprudence and its government and all that. These are fantastic cultures. A lot of wisdom and insight. There's a lot that God has left in fallen man in order that he can at least survive upon the planet. He can see things somewhat the way God created them. He's been given a mind by God, created by God intricately to understand his environment, to see the world in which obvious. The stars, the great creation of God, male and female created he them. It's only when they've reached a state of depravity where God has given them over to a depraved mind in Romans 1 that they can't see facts. They can't see empirical data and understand it the way they should. In fact, what we're getting down to here is we're getting down to worldview. How do you observe reality? And that's what was that crisis. We needed to know in this day as the theocratic kingdom was in absolute captivity, And God was now, as we mentioned earlier, a couple of sermons ago, moving them into a new way of seeing Him and understanding Him, a new way of understanding His kingdom. Now we have this crisis. And this crisis has been set up. And so we've got to go back to minister during the entire period of the Babylonian captivity, probably, all the way up into the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. He was called to lead God's people in their thought, in their understanding. He's what we would call today a thought leader or an influencer. And he's going to be influencing God's people in the right direction. And so I think the story is pretty easy to see. It's spelled out in quite a bit of detail, but so we won't miss a few things. Let me just suggest a few things as we go along. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, maybe more than one dream. It may have been over a long period of time, but whatever it was, it was a dream that greatly troubled him. And perhaps it seems from the text that he had forgotten a lot of the dream, but he still remembered what it was all about in terms of the the bare outline of it, but he had forgotten the details, and details are what you need to interpret a dream. So there he was kind of in a quandary, and 
He knew that the way to call his problem was to call in his counsel to classes of related wise men and counselors in the land to tell him what it meant. And they approached his throne with great boldness. They said, you tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. And he began to up the ante a little bit. He told him, said, I don't remember the dream exactly. I need you to tell me the dream. Then tell me the interpretation. That's a whole different ballgame. Because they were used to interpreting, and who knows if they're right or wrong, you know, if you've forgotten the dream. But they didn't know and weren't confident that Nebuchadnezzar had completely forgotten the dream because he issued an edict. He said, if you can do that, I'll give you great reward. He was appealing to the avarice that was already in the religious class. They're preachers that preach for money. And they're waiting on the reward. And that's a high motivator. And so he put the reward out there. They would have the houses and all the wonderful stuff. But then he said, but if you fail to do that, it's the death sentence. Nobody's ever done that to our group. Nobody's ever challenged us. that. We've got to come up with the dream and accurate. And then we have to interpret it correctly. That's a tall order. But that was the edict of the king. And he had spoken. And that was what he was going to do. So now they had to deal with it. And the first way they dealt with it was they came in and they uh, stalled. They began to stall around. They were looking for a little more uh, time. And in that time, they probably thought, number one, he'd forget about the whole thing. Or maybe change his mind. Or maybe recall the dream. Oh, I remember what it is. And it was this, this, and this. And tell me about it. And they thought during that period of time, it would also be possible for hints to come out and people to come up with something and they could put together something. And he called their bluff right away. Said, you're not going to do that. You're just stalling for time. I want to hear it and I want to hear it now. And he put out the edict that they would all be killed. Now that sounds like a harsh sentence, but it's not any different from what the Lord gave his people. He said, if you consult the uh, diviners, the sorcerers, the necromancers, all the people of the occult and all of that sort of thing in ancient Israel, God said he would cut you off. So the Lord had in mind a sentence of death for those who were occultic, false, demonically inspired advisors and prophets who basically did all that stuff. Soothsayers and fortune tellers, they're in it for the money. I mean, that's pretty simple. And they make most of their money with the common people and the people that aren't quite so sophisticated. But they were going to put this over on Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was just, he didn't get to be the emperor, I mean, the, the king of this great empire by being stupid. So he called their bluff and he said, if you can't do it, it means you're lying. Because you've already said you can. And so you're fraudulent, you're liars, you're false, you're empty, you're worthless to me. I'll just wipe you out and start with a new class and category of diviners and, and soothsayers and all the rest. This is pretty harsh. And when it became obvious then that he was going to carry out his word, they began to scramble around, what can we do? And there's an indication in our text, it doesn't read exactly that way, but in reading some, some folks that have done some pretty good work in this area, they said it, it, it's, it seems that, and there's a tradition, that he had already started uh, executing a few of them. You know, just kind of like a hostage crisis. You start with just one or two and you convince them you're serious. And he had already started. And so they knew how serious he was. And in the midst of all of this, the captain 
who had been given the assignment of going out and actually executing these men. And think about it, man, you're, you're, you're bringing charges and bringing into court and, and coming up with a death sentence on, on people who are your, the cream of your crop. I mean, these are basically the scientists, the knowledge people, the wise men of your whole culture. And I'm sure these, these military people didn't have any more appetite for executing these people than, than the men themselves. And it just in the context here, uh, Arioch, this particular captain, uh, came in contact with Daniel. And Daniel found out about it. And Daniel uh, said, I think I can do it. Uh, I, I know God can. Let me just go in and tell the king that, that give me a day or two and I'll come and give him the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And that's what the king was looking for. And so we pick up here then with Daniel in verse uh, 17 where he goes to tell his th three friends. Remember we talked about the four Hebrew in chapter one. We, we've already come to know these four outstanding young Hebrew men. It was Daniel, but then it was uh, men whose names became uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know these men, and they were uh, young men at the time, fairly young. This is the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and uh, this is what Daniel told him to do. And at this point, we begin to move from the natural into the supernatural. And the fundamental difference between scientific materialism and naturalism as a worldview in our day, and our view as believers in, in God and in Jesus Christ, is it's supernatural. Not superstition. That's a, something altogether different. Supernatural. It is quite often that it is the secularist, the materialist, the person that has the low view that becomes the superstitious one. Believing lies, promoting myths, and coming up with things that are not factually true in order to accomplish a purpose, be it religious or political or something else. So, in this instance, we now have an, an entree of the supernatural. Them, verse 18, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. They're going straight to the true and almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator God, the ruling God, concerning the mystery so that Daniel and his companion may not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. They were considered part of this class. Remember, they were students in this school of Babylonian culture. And I don't know how far they'd come along and finished their three-year seminary degree. I know that much. It said so in chapter one. But they were somewhere in that class and category, and eventually they would be part of the executed group. So this was a desperate prayer for these men as well. It said, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. What God, what, what Daniel asked the people to pray to God for, the true God, was for mercy, help. That's what you call for in a desperate situation. You don't spell out all the 10 or 12 steps it takes to get there. You just call upon the Almighty God to intervene supernaturally with His mighty power and His mighty wisdom on your behalf. You call for help and you ask God to have mercy. And that's what the prayers of the three men were about. Daniel, on the other hand, received a vision it says here, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Well, um, that's how God does business. 
In Numbers chapter 12, when the Lord is setting all this forth with Moses, there was an episode in which Miriam, who was Moses' older sister, but she thought she was Moses' mother. She was the one that had taken the baby Moses down into the bulrushes on the river, you know, and, and became the nursemaid to, you know, you know the story. And so she had this feeling of, uh, she was uh, very uh, maternal and probably a bit condescending to Moses. And then Aaron was the older brother. He's the one that had done all the talking. He was the spokesman. God would, would speak to Moses, but Aaron was the one that would do the talking there in the early stages of that, down in the Pharaoh's court especially. And they had presumed to begin to say, well, we know God spoke, speaks to Moses, but um, is, is, not, uh, is it not possible that God speaks to us too? And so the Lord straightened them out. Now the man Moses was meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. <laughs> that sounds like a father summoning a couple of three wayward children over to the room, you know, or, or out back somewhere for, to, to conduct a real fair trial. That was a summoning before the Lord. He said, come out, you three. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the entrance of the tent and called Aram and Miriam. And they both came forward, and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision known to a real prophet. And he'll do so in a vision. And then he, he goes on down. He says, with Moses, I have a special relationship. I speak to him face to face or mouth to mouth. And that was a very strong way of saying he will receive my words from my mouth. And that's what verbal inspiration is all about. He speaks. And they usually accompany one another. God will put words. And that's exactly what, uh, what the um, um, prophet, the true prophet, had going for him. That's why we call it special revelation among the theologians. There's general revelation. God speaks in the creation. God speaks in his provident care. But it's not so clear a voice. And it certainly, he said to Jeremiah when he called him, he says, I have put my words in thy mouth. That's the way God speaks. So, so Daniel is in line here of the great that uh, the Lord promised. He said, and when there comes a succession of prophets, then there'll be, eventually, the Lord will raise up, this is Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your, your brother raise up for you a prophet. That's what Moses said to the people, but a couple of verses down, the Lord says to Moses, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brethren, all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. This is the Lord putting the spoken, it needs to be, your word. And when you get right down to it, that's what we have as believers in this secular culture in which we live, in this increasingly godless culture, in this increasingly pagan culture, in this increasingly tyrannical culture. We have the sheer, mere Word of God about all things, fundamentally, and all else. All the other worldviews that are out there. It's interesting here, 
course, we know this is ultimately a, a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. He will be that prophet. He will be that final prophet. He'll be that one where the Father says, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. This is a prophecy, of course, of that, but we're not concerned with that particular portion of the prophecy, except to point out this, that the word that's used here several times in this text is mystery. Ask the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And when Daniel comes, he's used all through the Bible. And when you get to the New Testament, there are several things that are called mysteries in the epistles. Two of them I'll mention. One is the mystery of the gospel. The other is the mystery of the kingdom of God. And I will suggest to you that almost all of our conflicts within Christianity from the days of the Eastern Church, the Western Church, the Roman Church, the Protestant, and all the rest, is we miss one or both of those. They don't or we don't understand the mystery of the gospel, the nature of law and works, faith. We don't understand substitutionary atonement. We don't understand imputation. There are things that are hardcore mysteries that come to us as the incarnation. And so we have difficulty among and between our various denominations. And we don't understand the kingdom of God. That's with all the different millennial views that you have and all the different uh, things that, that divide us there. That's also where we don't understand the kingdom of God. We don't know the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. We don't realize which kingdom of which set of laws and which sovereignty is above the other. The kingdom of God has a law above the law. The kingdom of man has a law that should be derivative from the law above the law. And if it's not, it is a godless, sinful law. We don't understand these, these things. We don't understand what that means about us going about our daily life. How much investment did we put into the kingdom of God? And how much investment did we put into the kingdom of man? How much do we do for Caesar? How much we do, do, we, do we do for Christ? That it takes maybe a while to come to some of those conclusions. I'm afraid some of us have gotten old and gray and uh, stuck in our ways, and we haven't really heard and understood some of the nuance that is here. But that's the difference that is fundamental to our survival, especially on this planet. Now let me look real quickly. Got a couple of minutes here. Let's look real quickly at the prayer that Daniel prayed. First of all, I'm just going to sketch it because I've got an outline and there's, you know, there's buried in every verse of, of any psalm or any piece of poetry, there's buried in it a thesis which makes a theme for a really good series of lectures. <laughs> but let me just sketch this in, in, in these few verses there. First of all, this is a benediction. He said, blessed be the name. When we talk about the name, we're talking about the full attributes of God forever and ever. Daniel is calling, into, into, uh, calling to attention. That is, above all names, his name is a name that carries with it named attributes. And two of them are mentioned, especially here in this first verse. To whom belong wisdom and might. Wisdom is word, logos. Might is deed, work, accomplishment. Word and deed. Wisdom and might. God speaks and God acts. 
And this is what we need to find. And then he talks a little bit about what the Lord does. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. In fact, that's, what the, that's the theme of the vision is God's removal and setting up of kings. And, and he'll speak specifically to, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar about that. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And it was in his prayer, he's already seen the vision. He already knows what it, what it means. He knows what it is. He, he's got it covered. If it were me, once I got the vision, have here in this particular prayer, you have doxology, praising the Lord, blessing the Lord, and then you have thanksgiving. You'll see it in the second half of the, of the prayer. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. There we have a beautiful poetic way of saying he holds the, the understanding and of the deep and hidden, that is the mysterious. These mysteries, he knows what is in the darkness, and he says he reveals it. This is the self-disclosure of the Lord. It's not known unless he reveals it. You just can't figure out some of these things that are, that are divine truth without God telling you what they are. And as strange to your ears some may sound at first, it's the Word of God. And we need to take it and learn it. And the light dwells with Him. If I was a preacher, I'd stop right here and preach Christ. Because that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a shadowy phrase referring to Christ. The light dwells with Him. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The light of the world is Christ. He is understanding Christ and God's revelation of Himself in a, in a human being that is fully divine. That is God's self-disclosure as well. So we not only have the self-disclosure of God in word and in wisdom through the words of the prophets, but we have the living word, the light of the world. And since I don't have any time with that world, but you can see it there. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. There it is. I give thanks. That's Eucharist. This is a Eucharist prayer and it is a doxology. I give you praise. You have given me what? Wisdom and might. This is what he thanked the Lord for. To whom belong wisdom and might. Verse 1. I mean the first verse of the, of the prayer. And now the Lord has bestowed that upon him. Given him those particular capacities. Wisdom and might. It's called the communicable attributes of God. There's a lot of them. Things that God is like, but He can and will communicate to you. That's the, chiefly the work of the Holy Spirit of God, is communicating these divine attributes into a human manifestation and a human function. But we must finish with this prayer. It says, uh, You have given me wisdom, and you have made known to me. That's the self revealing of God what we ask of you and you have made known to us the king's matter so he's got it and so now he's ready to go and in conclusion let me just mention this he goes before the king the king said to Daniel are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation <clears throat> and the first thing that Daniel wants to set up before the king is yes I can yes I will but first you understand, this is not me. I'm not an exceptional wise man. I'm not a particularly well-trained and, and thing else except what God has given. This is not from me. This is, I didn't figure this out. I didn't conjure this. I didn't theorize this. 
Daniel said, this is not that kind of wisdom. This is not that kind of understanding and knowledge. This is the supernatural self-disclosure of the true God. And this word, so it's not about four times here in just this passage. But there is a God in heaven. And if I were a preacher, I'd stop here. I don't have enough time to stop again, do I? But there is a God in heaven. That's where it starts and that's where it stops for a child of God. He is a transcendent God, a God high and lifted up, a holy God, a God that is completely and holy other than His creation, and yet His power. That's the crisis. The crisis, do we believe in a transcendent God? And if we do believe in that God, here's what He has to say. And so He says that this is uh, this transcendent God. He's the God of heaven. Who read the Schaefer book uh, talking about God? He is there and He is not silent. There's a God in heaven and He speaks. He makes Himself known. He's beyond. He's absolute. In fact, He may be the first reality. The prime of all primes. The first of all first. He might just be the alpha. He said, what's going to happen? What, what's going to happen What the dream was all about and the visions of your head as you lay on the bed as you began to have visions. You also had thoughts, didn't you, Nebuchadnezzar? God had read Nebuchadnezzar's mind. But God was aware of what Nebuchadnezzar thought about the things as he tried to think about it. And as time went by, and as perhaps... I know I have a dream almost every night. A dream of any story, but sometimes they're, they're horrible. Sometimes I'm doing all kinds of crazy things that are dangerous. And there's just all kinds of stuff going on in dreams. But this dream is a, is a method. This is a vehicle. This is a to man's thoughts. The Lord says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. We are to think God's thoughts after Him, it's been famously said. And that's exactly right. And that's what He said. The Lord is controlling. You don't understand it because it's God's mind. And let me tell you what it is. And what it has to do with, it has to do with what's going to happen. An end in the future. A transition of an epoch of time. And, we'll, and the dream, of course, finishes the balance of the chapter. But as for thee, me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of it, that the interpretation may be known to the king. He is also the one that told Daniel what the dream meant. So when Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar both the dream and its meaning, what we had there was a revelation from God. It has to do with Christ. It has to do with the coming of the King of the Kingdom of God. It has to do with a lot of stuff, and Daniel will give us more and more information. Daniel all the way through to the end of time and into eternity. But that's what God was letting Nebuchadnezzar know about. 